Welcome to Leading with Empathy and Allyship, where we have deep, real conversations to build empathy for one another and to take action to be more inclusive and to lead the change in our workplaces and communities. I'm Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst and author of How to Be an Ally. I'm a diversity, equity, and inclusion speaker, advocate, and advisor. You can learn more about my work and sign up to join us for a live recording at ally.cc. All right, let's dive in. Well, hello, everyone. Today, we'll be talking with Julia Taylor-Kennedy, who's the Executive Vice President at COQOL, where she leads impactful research on workforce diversity, equity, and inclusion. It has definitely been impactful to us at Change Catalyst and our work. I mentioned it in my book, How to Be an Ally. And, and it's just, um, it has definitely made a difference, I think, in driving diversity, equity, and inclusion with research and really research-based decision-making. So today, we will focus specifically on her research about racial, ethnic, and gender equity in the workplace, in the global workplace. So Julia, I'm so glad to have this conversation with you today. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. So Julia, could you start by telling us a bit about your story, who you are, where did you grow up, and how you came to do the work you do? What a lovely way to start a conversation with the personal. We so often just dive right into the professional. So I appreciate the question. And it's hard to boil yourself down to one essence, but maybe Mm. I'll tell you a little bit about my life story and, and then people can derive their answer from there. So I grew up in suburban D.C., Northern Virginia. I'm the daughter of two parents who are both attorneys very politically progressive, and members of the LDS Church. So I grew up with a lot of tension around identity and political perspective, um, sort of living in tension with politics in a very political city between politics and religious beliefs. Grew up kind of feeling like an outsider, both when I went to church with my family and when I went to school, because everybody knew my religion. And that outsider perspective has actually really shaped a lot of what I do as an adult professionally. I went to school and majored in journalism, which really gave me a lot of tools to understand others' stories and observe the world, as I had spent a lot of time as an observer growing up, and then became a public radio host. And the last show that I hosted in public radio was called 51%, looking at gender and mostly at women's experiences. And so it was just a really fun job for me because I got to pull together a lot of the things I thought about my whole life, you know, the role that women play in society and how that's really shaped by the norms that we're in rather than anything innate. And I got to think a lot about that in this radio show. And so it was fun to to think, oh, something I'm really passionate about and ideas that I'm really passionate about could actually be the way that I make money in this world. Went back to graduate school and focused on gender and economic empowerment globally, on women's sort of migration pathways and how they can move up the economic ladder through migration. And then after graduation, sort of entered into the world of research think tanks because it allowed me to dive deeper into topics than I was able to as a radio host 
but not commit to 10 years of a PhD study. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was thrilled when I found Hopewell, used to be called Center for Talent Innovation when I joined. And it's really been my professional home for nine years now, uh, looking at different identities in the workplace. So not just gender, but also race, disability, veterans. I've led many different research reports there. And today I head up our research arm, as well as our leadership development arm. So I've moved from just observing the world around me to actually shaping it within companies and thinking about how we can be more intentional and inclusive so there aren't so many outsiders anymore in the workplace. Awesome. So you recently have released a number of resources around equity in particular, um, including the Black Equity Index, and then also a series of reports. And those reports, for those of you who are interested, Equity and Ethnicity at Work, which is a global exploration. Equity calls on everyone, equity at work. And then there's also a report that was meaningful for a lot of folks that came out during the pandemic, being Black in corporate America and intersectional exploration. So before we dive into some of the, the research there, let's define equity first. So what is equity as you define it? Great question, because I think many people struggle with this definition. Equity is a word that is so similar to the word equality, and yet it has a very different definition. So our definition of equity, which we pulled together from a few different sources, is the effort to provide different levels of support based on an individual's or group's needs to achieve fairness and outcomes. What's embedded in that sort of based on different needs means that we're acknowledging individuals start from different places and we have a responsibility to correct for the imbalance. So equality is about treating everyone the same, regardless of their background. And many of us heard as we were growing up you know, you should really strive to be colorblind. You should really strive to treat everyone the same. Even the golden rule that so many of us learn, treat others as you would like to be treated. What's problematic about that is, you know, some of what I was saying earlier about how we are socialized in a society that isn't equal. And so we grow up being treated differently due to different identities we might hold or treating others differently based on what we absorb and observe in the world around us. We actually are incapable of treating everyone equally. And even if we were capable of it, people come to us with a different bundle of experiences and treatment from others that have shaped them. So if we really want to say we want to create a better future where everyone, regardless of whether they're Black or female or Latinx, can attain the same opportunities, we have to take into account the context. And so we have to think about how do I provide different support to this person based on their background? How do I think about they might be the first from their family to have graduated from college, so they may not know as much about how networks work as someone who grew up watching their parents navigate corporate America, for example. Or even so have the same networks because their or parents even have, didn't. <laughs> exactly. Don't right. have the uncle or the cousin to call. So that's really what we're talking about when we talk about equity. And so really taking into account inequity when you're looking right. at, at, right. at this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. So when you're looking to measure equity, what indicators are you looking for? 
we took a targeted approach because equity is an enormous, <laughs> enormous concept. And inequities begin really from day one, the healthcare of the mother. So there's so much to take on in this field. We took a step back and said, okay, at Coquel, our mission is to focus on the workplace, to think about how to drive diversity, equity, and inclusion at work. And more specifically, we focus on the professional workplace. So what we wanted to see was when an employee enters the door of the workplace, where are the greatest points of unfairness in the way they're treated? In our first study, we thought, how can we think about that from the systems and processes? So HR, top leadership, leadership and development, talent management, those kinds of operations that really shape an individual employee's experience. What are the policies? And within that, what we heard was companies who made amazing commitments to racial equity, mostly in the wake of George Floyd's murder in 2020. At those companies, the easiest way to place to focus equity efforts is on hiring. Easiest way to switch your numbers, your representation numbers, people think. Is, at least at first. Right? At first, right, right is right. who you're bringing in the door, and of right. course that matters. You want to you want to hire people from a lot of different backgrounds. But then, if you think about their equity over the course of their time at your company, there are a lot of different points as which inequities can come in. So we asked our community because we have a membership base of 80 large companies. Where do you think you need the most resources when it comes to providing equity to employees? And they told us it was about promotions. It wasn't necessarily about hiring. Hiring is important. But then once an employee comes in, there's a lot of inequity that they experience over the course of their career path. And so that's where we first looked when we wanted to understand inequity and equity within a company. Those key decision moments that are shaped by HR and what managers are kind of trained to do and how they're trained to behave. So we looked at performance evaluations, promotions, and pay, because this is where things really start to diverge for employees of different backgrounds. Yeah. And then you can see that in some of the data that you share around, you know, as you go up in the organization, the organizations get less diverse and there's this growing divide. It starts even in the hiring, but then it continues all the way through the leadership level where it's severely inequitable. Exactly. And there are so many different ways that we've depicted that representation drop off over the years and that many have. And the share of white representation that grows as you go up. And then the the sliver of Black representation, Latinx representation, even Asian representation at those upper levels is really breathtaking. Mm -hmm. And especially as you look also across the intersections of gender too. Yeah. So you recently released this global study, and I think a lot of uh, global companies are looking for what do we do in this global world to, with offices in many parts of the world to really address diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it does look different. It feels different. And there are different indicators as well, I think, in, in different areas. So can you talk about um, just a few differences that you're finding globally around equity in the workplace? Absolutely. I mean, it's incredibly complex. And actually, when we undertook that global part of our inquiry, we had to take a step back because in the U.S., companies have been thinking about race and ethnicity 
in particular for really several years now. They've, they've added that and are starting to think about intersectionality and sort of the dual penalty um, that Black women experience and even some unique experiences they have because they are both Black and female and unique othering and marginalization that they experience. However, globally, because different countries have different racial and ethnic histories, it gets incredibly complicated as global heads of diversity are overseeing 60, 70 markets of operation for their companies. And so it's almost been this kind of avoidance. In some nations, you can't even ask because of complicated histories. In Germany, for example, because you know, of historical issues around tracking people's ethnic heritage, there's a cultural aversion to asking about someone's ethnic background. And so a lot of companies have said, we're not going there. And now they must, because again, you know, in the past couple of years, as there's been more of a focus trained on race in the U.S., employees around the world are saying, listen, I'm from a marginalized ethnic group. What are you doing to support me? And so we saw that global diversity, equity, and inclusion officers were starting to want to support people of different races and ethnicities around the globe, but didn't really know how to understand what was going, the nuances on the ground. And so sometimes companies would have a conversation about race in China that talked about the roots of slavery in the U.S., And it really came across as quite tone deaf to the folks that were in the room. And so what we did with this study was we took a step back and said, okay, first, you have to understand what groups need your support in a given country. What groups experience inequity? And it will vary country to country. So what we did was we broke down a process. How do employers start to understand who's marginalized in a market? And what we said is the first step is you have to understand your own limitations uh, when it comes to your own lens, right? What do you understand to mean race and ethnicity? What do you understand around gender? And be ready to question that when you look at a new market. And then you need to do some work to identify the marginalized groups in that market. So how do can people on your team consult census data, look at uh, research studies that have been conducted, talk to partner organizations on the ground who can say, this is the religious history, right? This is the colonial history in this country so that you can understand who are insiders and outsiders in that context. Then you want to understand the experience of employees. So how are those differences showing up? And where are the real points of pain for employees today in their experience at your organization? Before you can fix, right? Because you have to understand what what the current state is. Then you can partner and collaborate with other organizations to understand and other companies to understand what they're doing. And finally, you can really, and we think this is very iterative, be distilling and disseminating the information to leaders at headquarters and on the ground so that they are starting to get this nuanced understanding as well. Yeah, I think that's going to be super helpful for a lot of folks that are just kind of grappling with this to begin, especially as there are a lot of companies that are new to diversity, equity, and inclusion right now. And also companies that have been working on this for a while, looking for different approaches that are more regionally specific. So are there some examples you can give us about, we should start with what countries did you look at in particular? And then were there any specific differences across those different countries? 
Yes, of course. So in this study, we looked at Brazil, China, India, South Africa, and the UK. And one of the things that we found cropping up in a few of the countries was a lot of exclusion and marginalization according to religion. So we found in a few different countries, in India and the UK, for example, the experience of Muslim professionals really popped out from the data. You know, we followed this process ourselves in terms of understanding which groups to feature in each country. And in the report, we lifted up two groups from each country just to illustrate how much variation there is when it comes to the marginalization around ethnicity in different countries around the world. So, for example, in India, nearly two in five Muslim professionals surveyed said they fear physical harm if they disclose their ethnicity at work. Hmm. That's a really huge finding because, you know, you wouldn't run a self-ID campaign in India around religion the same way you would in the U.S., given the sphere of physical harm. So, you know, in India, where we also found some really interesting nuance around caste, we looked at caste in India as well. One of our recommendations for companies looking to drive inclusion of these groups is to start with acknowledgement that they exist, right? Mm. Not to ask anything risky of the members of their groups, But just for leaders to say, we know that there are experiences of exclusion based on whether you are from a certain caste or a certain religion. Yeah, I think that safety and even providing the information is really important and crucial. And and so you're saying that that even just starting with that conversation and say that there is a difference in experience um, Mm -hmm. to begin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To acknowledge it. And of course, there are many other, you know, I could go on and on about the things that we found. It was, it is amazing how things vary country to country. And when we just asked respondents, you know, what identity is salient when you think about your ethnicity? The response that we got around race, for example, varied really widely country to country. So in India, one reason we didn't feature race, we focused on caste and religion, is because only 22% of professionals in India say race is part of how they define their ethnicity. It's mm. only one in five. Whereas in South Africa, it's three in five who say mm. race is part of how I define my ethnicity. Yeah, that is very interesting. And that even in the UK, people were reluctant to discuss race as well, which we're, we have found yeah, in different countries around the world that there is a, also, interestingly, it does, the more white majority countries are, the less likely they are to want to talk about race too, which is mm-hmm. an interesting, it's a, there's mm-hmm. a perception issue there, I think as well, mm-hmm. that there mm-hmm. isn't a problem because there are more people around me who are like me. Are any other surprises you want to share about what you found either in this report or the other pieces that you have released over the last couple of years? Yeah. One of the things that we've been looking into more is parenting. Mm. That's kind of in our roots as an organization. We were started by an economist who looked a lot at family policy. And then we stepped away from it uh, for a few years. But we brought it back as a theme. Of course, during the pandemic, it's been so important in people's lives that parenting is an incredible challenge and really hard to balance with work. So we wanted to look at it in our belonging study. 
So this was two years ago. First, we looked at belonging, which is really all about how you feel a part of a community, whereas equity is more about the actual sort of nuts and bolts, rules and processes uh, that companies put in place to treat people fairly. With belonging, we wanted to understand who felt like an insider and outsider and why. We looked at parenthood in a couple of ways. One way was to look at who was actually doing the work of parenting and caregiving Mm -hmm. of children between women and men. And then we also wanted to understand what their sense of belonging was, whether they were parents or not. What we found with women and men was not surprising. We found that women are doing more of the work of parenting than men. We did find that men are contributing more under the pandemic than they were pre-pandemic. So that's you know, that's interesting and also kind of to be expected. But what we were surprised by was we were measuring people's sense of belonging on a zero to 10 point scale. And we found that those who were parents actually had higher belonging scores than those who were not parents. And at first, this really surprised me. And then upon reflection and conversation with a lot of experts, it made more sense. I am a parent now of a 14-month-old, so I'm a later parent. Much of my working life has I've experienced as a non-parent. And there is something about building bonds parent to parent that is just different in our society and in the workplace. You know, once you ask people about their kids and start to share stories about how you're raising your kids, how you're making decisions, even what brand of diapers you're using, There's a whole world that people can enter as a point of commonality that non-parents don't have the same access to. And so I think it makes sense that belonging scores for parents were higher. It's a way to kind of enter into people's more intimate lives if you're able to connect on parenting. That was a surprise. Yeah, very interesting. I will say I also was struck by a couple of things, but one in particular around invisibilization, that that, that feeling of being in, invisible at work, which definitely you've seen research showing that Black women often feel invisibilized. And then also what you shared in your research is that uh, depending on your castes, in, in castes in India in particular, that invisibilization can be very high or not very high. Very interesting. Do you want to share a little bit about invisibilization and what's behind that question, invisible at work? Absolutely. So one of, and and it connects to our belonging work too. Mm -hmm. We talk about belonging as being seen, supported, connected, and proud. And being seen by those around you is really important to knowing you are part of a community, have a future in a community, have your accomplishments recognized and your contributions recognized by others. So you mentioned Black women, for example, and there is long history of research, including ours, that looks at how Black women's contributions are overlooked, their experience is discounted, they're asked to prove themselves over and over again. So it's not just that they physically are invisible, although that also happens in meetings, but that their worth isn't seen by others. So that's some of what's underneath Underneath that feeling of invisibility is not being recognized, even if you're sort of physically present, that your whole self isn't necessarily seen, which leads to stunted growth and advancement in one's career, getting less feedback, getting fewer stretch opportunities. 
and being something else that we have documented for those of uh, you know lower castes or unscheduled castes who are not Hindu, for example, is being excluded from meetings. And there are people often don't talk about caste, but there are signals that might show that they might be from a different caste, such as last name or religion. This is something else that we see with employees with disabilities. This comes up a lot with employees with disabilities who may be excluded from meetings. If they have a physical disability, they're more likely to experience people not looking them in the eye, things like that. Mm. Then the other piece, which I think you're increasingly going into more and more, is intersectionality. And I mean, we often, you know, we measure race, we measure ethnicity, we measure gender, but it is the intersections as well that are really, really important. A few things that stood out for me. We talk about colorism. In particular, we talk about colorism as it relates to Black people. And also, when you look across Latinx folks, that also comes into play. Whether they, somebody has light, medium, or dark skin makes a big difference and whether or not they feel performance performance views uh, reflect fairness, for example. And then uh, so colorism is something that stood out for me that it's, it's doubly intersectional, right? And then also Black professionals from lower class backgrounds are more than one and a half times as likely as those from higher class backgrounds to say their pay is lower than that of their peers. That also struck me as, you know, we don't often think about classes. We talk about it, but not, we don't really look at the data around that. And then of course, when you look at Black women, Latinx women, Indigenous women, pay equity, of course, is, is lowered as well. One of the things I think you were really intentional about is, is in the being Black in corporate America is the, that intersectionality. Can you share how you explore intersectionality and what are some of the findings that, that have really resonated or stood out for you? Sure. Yeah. Intersectionality is one of those concepts that, you know, was pioneered by Kimberly Crenshaw out of mm. Columbia University, and she has a legal background. And what she really found was that when it came to discrimination, Black women were experiencing different and deeper discrimination than white women or Black men. And so she spoke at, at actually one of our events around the Being Black in Corporate America research. And one of the things that she keeps redefining for us in the space is that intersectionality isn't just about holding two outsider identities. It's mm -hmm. about how the intersection of those identities leads to a different experience from if you just held one or the other. And the penalty of that different experience, which, you know, she's made very clear uh, when it comes to Black women, and we've documented too. So we, we try to hold that as we do our intersectional research. It can be so easy to sort of slip into the territory of saying, oh, well, they're women with disabilities, so that means they're having an intersectional experience. You actually kind of have to dig through and say, okay, what is different for them because they hold and carry these two identities. So for Black women specifically, something that we've seen is when we did a piece of research on women in STEM, which actually you and I talked mm. about early mm. days. Um, yeah. and you, helped, you helped us think about some of the themes for that work. Mm. We were very specifically looking at company programs because companies were putting in place and still are all kinds of targeted programs to support women in STEM roles. And so we were trying to understand, you know, what's most impactful when it comes to sort of retaining and advancing 
women in STEM. And we looked at women, white women, Asian women, Latinx women, and Black women. We had a really interesting finding around employee resource groups in that study because we found that employee resource groups gave this huge boost to women's retention and advancement overall, Mm -hmm. and especially for white women. But Black women specifically, it made not a lick of difference, no difference in their likelihood. If their company had a women's ERG, no difference in their their likelihood to stay or advance. And the reason for that, when we, again, what we do is we get the data and then we go out and talk to a bunch of people if we have a surprising finding. What we heard was Black women said, ERGs don't help me. They're built for white women. They're built for Black men. I fall through the cracks. I don't see myself in those communities. I don't get the community support. I don't get the leadership development support. My unique experience is not being supported. You know, that was a really interesting finding for us as we were applying this more intersectional lens. And something else that we have picked up on over the years, as you indicated for Latinx employees, is around colorism and around white passing. Because whether they intend to or not, many Latinx employees who present as white are treated differently by their peers, are treated as though they're white by their peers. And so their name may not indicate their ethnicity, their skin may not indicate their ethnicity. And in our recent study on equity, big finding there was they are more likely to say, yeah, my manager evaluates me fairly. Whereas those Latinx professionals with darker skin who are more sort of visibly Latino are experiencing a performance evaluation that is not as fair. Yeah. And then the intersection of race and ethnicity too, where there are Black, Latinos, uh, Latinx mm-hmm. folks um, as well. Mm-hmm. We kind of, you addressed a belonging a, a bit and, and maybe you could address a little bit the intersection of belonging and equity. The work to fit in comes in several different times within your research around equity. Um, so how do belonging and equity kind of interrelate here? I mean, it's this is the thing about our space is it's all so many of the different things that we're working on, diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging, interrelate and are overlapping. And I think that's true of any change movement Mm. out there, right? Mm, These things can be separate. They can be reinforcing. When you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, belonging is on par with love, right? So we have our basic, we have to be fed, we have to have shelter, and then we have to have this sense of human connection and acceptance and belonging. So that's really what the belonging at work practice is is rooted in. It's, It's rooted in what is our core need as humans that some of us in a white supremacist society have closer access to than others. So it's connected to inequity because that closer access point is about equity and inequity, right? So so there isn't equitable distribution of belonging, I guess is Mm. what I'm trying Mm. to say. But in terms of the practice within our field, what we see is belonging is more about culture and movement building because all of us need belonging. And so it's a concept that can translate for white people and white men specifically a little bit easier than some of the other concepts. They can think, what when, what was a time I wasn't, you know, I was excluded and or I was othered, whether I was traveling or not picked for a team. And that is by no mean, means equivalent 
to the experience of being black in America, for example, but it might be like a tiny little gateway to empathy for me. Mm-hmm. So that's really the practice of belonging is building a movement, building empathy, sort of tapping into everyone's need to belong and knowledge that everyone needs to belong. The equity work is really about, okay, let's unpack the systemic racism that's built into our company and how we can adjust for it. People are described differently in performance evaluations. Women are most more likely to be described based on their sort of emotions. Men are more likely to be described based on their core skills, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. How can we correct for that? Or literally look at how people are paid and adjust and make sure that we're paying people with equivalent skills and who are contributing equivalently the same amount. So it's much more kind of process heavy when you're thinking about equity work than the cultural piece of belonging. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to get to solutions a bit. And you you shared some already earlier, just in terms of like acknowledge where you are, identify who is even marginalized and go to the data, look at the data and then collaborate on solutions essentially, right? Maybe we could talk a bit about, there's a lot of folks who are listening, who are managers, who are mm. leading teams. What mm. are things that they can do to address Belonging, but also to get at the equity, to get at the systemic issues that need to be solved, the inequities, so that we can have a more equitable equitable workplaces. Yeah, there are a couple of ideas. Our second report in the Belonging series actually focused on day-to-day interactions with mm. managers and colleagues, because we know that that shapes what's in your performance evaluation, whether you get the work assignment that will set you up to be seen as a top performer, for example. And what we found, and we didn't even intend, this wasn't even our hypothesis. You know, we had a really long list of ways an individual's manager could treat them. And then we tested what manager behaviors lined up to perceptions of fairness Mm. on teams from employees. And we found that inclusive leadership, which we've been talking about for so many years, the same behaviors that make an inclusive leader correlate to perceptions of employee fairness on teams. So if you're driving inclusion, you're also driving equity, which is very efficient. For managers, a lot of this inclusive leadership stuff boils down to good leadership, period. It's about setting a team, the speak-up culture on teams, creating an environment where people feel comfortable giving and receiving feedback, where feedback is specific and actionable. And so as a leader, to be giving feedback in a low-key, timely, specific manner to your team members so that it becomes normalized, to be asking for feedback, to be also sort of saying, can giving away credit for ideas, Mm -hmm. to be empowering people to bring new ideas, to make sure every voice around the table is heard. And if they're not comfortable speaking up in a group setting, getting ideas outside of the meeting. Those are the kinds of things that promote fairness, produce great ideas, and cool down a sense of bias on teams. You know, we have lots of research. That was just one sentence, but we have lots of research to back that statement up. Yeah, absolutely. You've been at Coquel doing this work for nearly a decade. In that time, what has changed? Uh, what And what is continuing to change when it comes to equity in the workplace in particular? Well, 
I what do you see? It's been a decade yeah. that made me feel really old. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the first time we ever talked to each other was about then. <laughs> That's right. We both look exactly the same. Exactly. <laughs> or exactly. better. <laughs> but we're um, smarter. We're <laughs> exactly. We're wise. We're wise. Yes, exactly. um, what has changed? Honestly, people weren't talking about equity when I started. It was DNI. It was diversity and inclusion. Inclusion yeah. was. People were talking about cutting through groupthink. People were making the business case over and over and over again. And for those who are team leaders who are less comfortable or familiar with the space, the business case is proving to companies that actually drawing on talent from all corners of society is better than limiting your pool to, you know, just a smaller sliver of society. Mm-hmm. So an argument that you know, making the business case is arguing over and over again that it's worthwhile to have a diverse employee base. And, you know, we still have to make that argument sometimes, but it's there and established and we can draw on it. So it is a bit of a relief not to continue to have to do that over and over again and say, okay, we can draw on our body of knowledge if we need to go there. I think that in 2019, when we published Being Black in Corporate America, We made an enormous splash by saying we saw systemic racism at companies. That was to us, we dug deep, took a deep breath and made that statement. And then seven months later, everyone was saying it. It was kind of like accepted fact. And that's been remarkable to watch and be a part of that sea change. You know, one can argue we might be losing momentum. We need to keep pressure up. And that is true. That's what I go back to when I get discouraged in this work is that quick, quick sort of education that many people underwent in a very short period of time. Now we need to turn it into measurable progress uh, that we can have in these conversations. The acceptance of some facts in this conversation is really energizing. Yeah, I agree with you. And of course, there is a lot of work to do to keep moving forward and to keep that momentum, as you say. And uh, Well, and you read that you look at the news and that's when it becomes hard because you see behavior and actions that are, you know, you just can't imagine the depth of the racism and uh, the hatred that still exists in our society. Yeah, absolutely. All of this is about kind of learning and then understanding and building empathy for each other, understanding how to create equity and then taking action on that. So what action would you like people to take coming away from this conversation today? I think it depends where you sit in the work. You know, we just ended talking to managers you're a manager, step back and think about what's the composition of your team? Do you want to change it? When's the last time you asked for feedback, right? Mm -hmm. Are you hearing all voices around the room? Really think about the inclusive behaviors I went through and what you're doing well on and what you think you could work on. If you're a diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioner, think about the resources that are being directed towards hiring versus those other processes we talked about, performance evaluations, promotions, and pay. And while you might not have direct control over those things, most DEI folks are tasked with advocating and steering the ship. And so think about building the relationships you might need to build in order to reallocate some of those resources, in order to kind of peel back the cover and even be tracking across both gender and race, as well as other marginalized identities, but starting with gender and race, 
people's access to opportunities and how they're being evaluated and whether they're being promoted equivalently across Mm. those different identities. Excellent. And last question is, where can people learn more? If they want to go deeper, if they want to learn more about this work, where do they go? We'll start with our website. It's uh, coquel.org. But the great news is today there's a proliferation of resources. You know, I think some of the places I go first are HBR um, has wonderful uh, quick pieces to get smart on this. Of course, listen to Melinda's podcast every single time. Of course, of course, of course. (laughs) Thank you. There's three places to start. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you, Julia. Thank you for for having this conversation and for creating the research that really is, I do believe what you said earlier, that it is helping drive change forward. Um, So I appreciate all the work that you do. Thank you. I so appreciate the work you're doing too with allyship. And it's just such a pleasure to reconnect with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right, everyone, make sure that you do take action and uh, stay tuned next week. To learn more about this episode's topic, visit ally.cc. Allyship is a journey. It's a journey of self-exploration, learning, unlearning, healing, and taking consistent action. And the more we take action, the more we grow as leaders and transform our communities. So what action will you take today? Please share your actions and learning with us by emailing podcast at changecatalyst.co or on social media, because we'd love to hear from you. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel and share this. Let's keep building allies around the world. Leading with Empathy and Allyship is an original show by Change Catalyst, where we build inclusive innovation through training, consulting, and events. Appreciate you listening to our show and taking action as an ally. See you next week.